Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no tell. Welcome to In the Know, Tristan. It's wonderful to have you. I am so curious to learn about you and share with our listeners. In some ways, I mean, through the lens of just all the places Arab touches the world, yes, the built environment, which I guess is just 99% of what 80% of the population of the earth makes contact with cities and buildings and yep. roads and all the infrastructure that makes everything. Thanks for being on In the Know. You know, maybe a good place to start is you have the simplest LinkedIn of most people. I've ever seen. Your LinkedIn profile is 31.6 years at, at Arab. Is that roughly right? Actually, it must be a bit out of date. It's now um, about 38 years. Yep. Ah, okay. So you got involved with Arab before there was LinkedIn, evidently. But the 38 yeah. years, it must have been the early days. I mean, you're the deputy chair now. Yep. How did you decide to be part of creating the largest and most impactful design engineering firm in the world? So in some ways, I feel I'm here under false pretenses because I am the current, well, one of the current caretakers of an organization that started in 1946 and I hope will carry on you know, indefinitely after pass on to other people. So there's, we are a collective. We own ourselves and our whole way of life is to get good people and let them do what they want. And that started um, a structural engineering, which is what I happen to do. But now it's you know, a wide range of services to the built environment from consulting, advisory services, policy strategy, planning through to the actual design and delivery, typically of new parts of the built environment, but increasingly, how do you deal with the existing parts and make them fit for the future? In the fields where now, you operate, I, of course, the stature of your firm is colossal. Perhaps for folks that don't place orders for new bridges, your firm may not be as well known for your sort of standard software entrepreneur or somebody who might be listening. I wonder if you could give me a little bit the arc of, of Arab before you got involved. I mean, I, I suppose the heart of it is engineering services for buildings and other projects from inception. Yeah, that's the heart. It's always difficult for me to do this because we, you know, we help deliver about 10,000 projects every year. It's hard to remember or even remember a snapshot that's compelling. But, you know, the first sort of most prominent project we got involved with was the Sydney Opera House. And that's sort of classically, how do you construct, design, construct? something that seems inconceivable in its time, at its period, in its place. Centre Pompidou in Paris, the Lloyds Building in London, HSBC headquarters in Hong Kong, all sort of following that line. And then meanwhile, we get involved with infrastructure projects, railways, bridges, the Orison crossing between Denmark and Sweden, the Stonecutters Bridge in Hong Kong. We're currently working on the longest suspension bridge in the world in um, Istanbul, Turkey, and then into the systems that make the built environment work. So from railways is the easy one to energy, to water, to sewage, and to roads, of course. And roads take us out of cities and start connecting cities together. And then, as I said, it's up into the design and planning. We just recently competed for the planning of a new town in China. I say new town modestly, but of course, this is a city of 4 million people outside Beijing because President Xi thinks that Beijing's too big and it's time to um, start another city next door for, where some of the administrative functions of Beijing can be moved. No, nothing, oh, nothing's Lord. done in small measure in, the, <laughs> in China under the current, current government. It's very hard to see Arab as a whole thing without getting some aggregation of all the projects we've done over the years. But AIM 
is always whatever it is we do, we want to do it better than it's ever been done before. And we start, as I said, by getting the best people, giving them the freedom to be creative, which is a difficult thing in a world where engineering has to be reliable, is based on logic and often on numbers. So it's adding that creative dimension to engineering exploring new things and how to improve the world. And of course, right now, with climate change, with the lack of resources, with um, rising population, which at least won't rise forever, we predict, it's even more important than it ever has been. Without your talent for understatement, that list is, it would be implausible <laughs> where you start from, you know, perhaps an entirely new city from full cloth and uh, yeah, scripts it just takes me right to the heart of what I wanted to investigate with you, having been part of building a firm and delivering yourself probably so many projects that from plausible, unbelievable, undoable. I mean, I assume the first sketches for the path were to engineers who told them it couldn't be done. And surely the timetable that China wants to put up is some eye-popping timetable. Is it your customary situation or is it a common enough situation to walk into a client's requirement and have they've already heard that it's impossible from others often i mean that's that's where we're off our forte is you know again maybe a bit of understatement we say dealing with complexity but it's also dealing with challenge the challenge is the reverse of opportunity and it's always seeking that opportunity to how do you do things as i say literally how do you do things better but often comes into well how do you do something at all so recently there's a, a big bridge we've just completed the queensferry crossing between across the Forth up in Scotland, and the government of Scotland's problem was that their new bridge was going to cost £4 billion, and they didn't have £4 billion. So in this case, our challenge is, well, how do we get the, the functionality of the new bridge, but for less money? And glad to say it was completed last year for £1.7 billion. The challenge has come in all shapes and sizes, if you like, and it's how do you do it. And in that case, it was to do with, well, actually, don't demolish the existing bridge, even though it's not fit for the whole purpose. It can be used for some of the purpose and don't build a whole lot of new roads, but use intelligent transport systems, which is ways of controlling the flow of vehicles using you know, effectively electronic signboards in a way to get more capacity out of the existing roads. So it's thinking around your issue and your problem and how do you actually you know, solve it in a way that suits everybody. Well, that sounds creative and uh, clever in retrospect, but the mandate received and your freedom to operate is a thing I'm curious about. The unreasonable client who wants something that seems like it can't be done, who others have told it can't be done, and they're simply insistent. And so they come to the table with you. You're the best. You want to do things never done before. How do you set that up for success? You rely on the, on the quality of the people that you have in the organization and or the quality of the people you can find to collaborate with outside the organization. So it's there are two sort of fundamental things, I think, that drive us. One is curiosity. You know, what is out there? What is known? What is not known? What is possible? You know, so it's a continual inquiry into what's going on and to do that in a collaborative way and to rely on expertise and knowledge. And that's easy to say, quite complex to do, because in some ways, the imagination and creativity required to explore possibility is a slightly different thing to an extreme depth of knowledge or expertise in any given subject area. So it's how you marshal all that expertise into a creative and imaginative experience where you explore opportunities. There's a tendency, if you know an awful lot about what you do, to also think you know the solution before you start to think, if I can put it like that. So it's how do you, you know, withhold your your um, immediate need or, or wish to go to a solution 
and instead listen to other people and think more deeply and realize that actually by combining all these different bits of expertise, we can do different things. And then somebody has to work out what that expertise is, what would be beneficial. You can get overloaded with too much. It's, um, it's quite complicated, but it ultimately it comes down to having people who are very good at what they do, but are very curious about how it can be done better. Sounds like up front, there's a step where you and your teams and perhaps the culture of your firm is willing to receive a difficult mandate and will take a moment to retire back to the collective, to all the people and all the experts and do a, a kind of broad deliberative process before coming up with a, a point of view, a yes or a no. You sort of are buying time from your client to walk away and go do some work. Let me do the drawing that was in my mind in the first five minutes that we were speaking, but rather let's go find a lot of different perspectives on this problem. We're building a bridge, but why don't we ask some rail designers instead of just asking some structural engineers? Yes, or indeed, you know, are you sure the bridge is the right answer? You might be better off with a tunnel or anything like that nature. In fact, it can be slightly frustrating for clients. We can be frustrating for clients because it's likely that the first question we ask our client after they've told us exactly what they want, what their problem is, and what sort of solution they might be looking for, you know, our first response is often why, root cause of whatever it is, rather than start from wherever they've already got to, which they feel is taking them back down the journey they've already gone down quite often. But if we don't understand why, then we don't know in which directions there are opportunities outside what we've just been told to do, if that makes sense. So it's, you know, classically exactly what I just said we're doing, looking at a crossing again in Scandinavia, where it seemed obvious it was going to be a bridge, but actually a tunnel was more sensible, it seemed. I myself am working on a project in Barcelona, the completion of Sagrada Familia, Gaudi's amazing church, where we were approached because there was a particular dilemma about weight on one part of the church, and they thought the only answer was to do it in steel, a steel frame clad with lightweight cladding that might look like stone. And we said, well, I wonder, you know, why can't we build it actually as stone itself, but using new technology to make that stone effectively as a structure without using too much of it. In other words, meet the weight challenge by a different method. So when they said, please design a steel tower, our question is, why did you want it in steel? The answer was, keep the weight down. And our answer was, well, how about we do it in post-tension stone instead? You know, these are sort of simple examples they're giving you, but I think you, you get the idea. The idea is you get back to why are we trying to do it and therefore what are the opportunities? Yeah, you do make it sound simple, but... I guess taking a client along on that on that journey is tricky, or taking yourself along on that journey. I mean, part of the insight you're sharing isn't just why are you guys so good, why is that so good at helping folks, but it's how to solve a hard problem. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you sort of face a problem in your own feelings, whatever it is, and to go deeper on what the goal is, I suppose, is a very important starting point rather than to assume that simply refining the first draft is the way to get to the answer. And we've been talking a little bit about a process that points towards the customer. And, you know, I think the, the Sagrada Familia is an awesome, one of the most famous buildings in the world. Is, and maybe it's a nice example to examine is how do you set up these multidisciplinary yet incredibly expert teams? I, in the past, was McKinsey for some time and I've had some dealings with some of the other creative problem solving type firms in the world, like IDEO and others that have different kinds of specialties or some of the ad agencies. And I'm always so curious about the people business part of it. Yes, yeah, so the two parts of the answer. The first is, you know, how do you develop your own people so that they're available you know, when you have challenges like that? And I say it's largely, mm -hmm. to the largest extent possible, run your organization as a network of talent, if I can put it like that, of people 
who are really good, they're self-motivated. In some ways, they don't want to be in an organization, but they can see the benefit of being loosely connected with other people. At a certain level, it's a partnership. So the most senior folks at, at your firm yes. are all partners at some level, kind of like lawyers. Well, actually, like we'll, we'll be, we're slightly beyond that in that we are all simply members of an organization owned in trust for our own benefit. So every single member of the firm is a an equal participant in the firm, not equal in terms of the salary they receive, but equal in terms of status. The profit we may or may not make in any given year, and I'm glad to say we always have, is distributed across the whole firm to every member. So we don't have any owners, which gives us this ability to be freer in the way that we trust people and or bring people to the table. And so who leads projects? Are the problem solvers the same as the, the folks who deal with customers and clients? Um, largely, yes. The ideal Arab person is what we call a renaissance person who can do it all. They're difficult to find, though, the person who can have a client relationship, do the deal, arrange the contract and the terms and conditions, and deliver the product. For some reason, are sort of ideal. But more and more, of course, people specialize in different things. They get good at different things. And so you put a team together instead. Yeah, but it's ideas come from wherever they come from is you know, an absolute tenet of ours. It's just because you're senior and you're in charge of making decisions don't, doesn't mean that you come up with the ideas. The ideas come from wherever they come from, inside the firm or outside the firm. And that was the, Sagrada is a very good example of that, that all we did in some ways is listen to everybody else, our client, the architects, and particularly in this case, the builders, and, and what they enjoyed doing, what they didn't enjoy doing, you know, what success they'd had in the past, what they tried that didn't work. And you've got to just explore all of that and bring your own slightly different perspective, if you like, onto what might be possible and have the courage, perhaps as well as curiosity, the next one is courage, to believe that there are alternative ways of doing things. How's the Sagrada team organized? Is it such a high profile and a big project? Have you got 10 people, 100 people? Is there, are there people dedicated sitting in Barcelona or are they sitting in London? I mean, or as an example, and it doesn't have to be that one, for example. No, I think it's an excellent example because it shows that team size is not necessarily a criteria. So we have the client in Barcelona who is a foundation and there's a board of trustees of the foundation. They employ directly all the architects, of which are about 20 for the whole project, who are individuals employed, as I say, directly by the foundation. There's a team of about 50 craftsmen, laborers and builders, also employed directly by the foundation. Five zero. Those are the ones similar... that a tourist might see if they were standing around there. Yes. Chiseling some statues cleaning some facade. Yep, that's it. I mean, there's a greater team that we don't interact with, run administration, IT, security, you know, ticket sales, etc., which we don't get involved with. Then there's a small team of um, structural engineers in Barcelona who have been working on the project for uh, the last 25 years, a firm called 2BMFG. They have about three or four people working on the project, and there are about six of us at Arup in London. And we don't have anyone dedicated to being in Barcelona. We travel there regularly and we work by video conference on a, you know, sort of every two or three days is how the collaboration actually happens. And there's something about collaboration which works better in our view when you have a bit of your own time thinking deeply on your aspects of it and uh, coming together with everybody else time. And that can be just with the engineer 2BMFG in Barcelona, sometimes with the architect, sometimes with both and then also with the builders and the supply chain and the client themselves. Now, you, you have different meetings of different scales you know, at which you get all these different opinions and ideas in which you try and marshal into a, a positive result. And that's true of your Arab team as well. So if there's, if there's six of you in London, you're sort of all working on different things as well, and you're thinking independently as well, and then you'll come together and have the Arab meeting, and then you might have the cross-team meeting. 
and share ideas exactly. on, a, and that, on an aspect. And we're also we're going to bring in ideas from Arab from probably about another hundred people in different ways, a material expert here or a facades expert over there or a logistics expert or whomever, whatever, depending on what it is. We're yeah, and how do you go so and solicit that. that? I mean, you're clearly working on a lot of stuff and you're probably publishing internally into some kind of you know, internal knowledge base sort of thing. And presumably there's a lot of relationships and shared projects and personal experiences, but a puzzle comes up, you know, hey, how do we do this in concrete but lighter or do it in stone but lighter? An important project. I mean, how do you ask a thousand people to find the hundred that know something? In, yeah, in well, we do exactly what you just said as it happens, but it's probably in the terms of structural engineering, we asked 6,000 people. And we've had very good, well-connected internal networks on a discipline basis, uh, like the structural engineers, the mechanical engineers, etc. There are 75 of them at the moment, 75 separate networks who do interact. They interact very well because a lot of us know each other very well either because we've worked on projects together, or most leaders in Arab have spent time elsewhere in Arab, by which I'm in a different country or a different continent. And through that, over time, and we tend to stay. We're a bit weird because we don't get out very much. We come into Arab you know, as graduates just like I did in 1981 and never go anywhere else. Uh, but that builds these very strong internal connections and links, which we can then mobilize very easily to get ideas or answers to questions. So some time and energy is invested on each person. Of course, you, you prefer these blank slates, these sort of raw talent folks who come in and turn them into, you know, the Arab culture. But then in turn, you invest, you move them around and you put them on all these different projects, different geographies. And now there are nodes in your network over time. And I, I presume the digital aspect has accelerated some of that in the last couple of decades. But the core seems to me the same. I, you know, when I was with McKinsey, for example, I noticed a similar ethos and strategy on, on the people front. And, and really, McKinsey is a people business. And I wonder if you'd say your firm is a people business at this point, or at least your role. No, no, the firm is absolutely a people business. And in fact, you know, if you dig into our aims and values, which was written down by our founder, Ovarap, who was a philosopher as well as an engineer, and he cared as much about why we were at work as much as what we did at work. The first statement in why are we at work is for people to be happy. The whole construct of Arab is how do you try and put together an organization where people really enjoy what they do? And, and then he went on to say, the first thing that makes people really happy is to do a really good job, to work at maximum quality. And that requires people of maximum quality. And it's sort of, you know, and you, you carry on building a, you know, an idea, a logic, which is a firm that's driven by its values of, you know, in our case, quality of work. He called it total architecture, which means integrating all these different disciplines and ideas into a, a product you know, which is fit for its purpose or better than fit for its purpose. It's having a social responsibility, that was doing work which is of use to society as a whole, and being a humane organization, treating people as people, not parts of an organization, and ultimately oh, and acting with total integrity, that was absolutely straight and honest in everything that you do, and lastly, reasonable prosperity. And you notice... We're not a business that's out to make money, but we recognize that the only way to stay in business is to be solvent, if you see what I mean. So it's, a, it's, a sort of, it's an outcome, not a driving force. An interesting kind of advice to give another company to always do the best and I, uh, the dividends will follow. I think it's mobilize your talent and let your talent you know, have a voice, have an opinion, and feel as though they're contributing, if you like. It's a very simple thing allow people to develop into the best people they can possibly be, 
by letting them have the opportunities and working out what sort of person that they want to be, if I can put it like that. You know, we take it to the extreme by saying that if somebody wants to leave um, Arab, for example, they might be brilliant and we, we'd hate them to have their loss. But if we can all see that they would develop into better people outside Arab, then we're in favor of it. That's your core purpose is this idea of making better people or allowing better people to develop. And through that, you will get people like me who never leave. You, know, we, you fall in love with the idea of Arab. And then, of course, you get these brilliant opportunities to do things which are absolutely astonishing. In such a people-centric culture, a uh, company whose mission is to help the people do the thing they want to do, I wonder if at times you find the horses are pulling in different directions or that our interests are diverging in a way. I mean, it must be every day that someone says they want to make a, a rocket to go to Mars or some, some other cockamamie software to reinvent travel or something like that. And with such brilliant people with such curious minds, how do you stay on mission? How do you keep it coherent? That is an absolutely brilliant question to which we don't have a perfect answer. I can say that for our first 60 years of being until we were probably three and a half thousand people or something, we had no strategy as a firm. We simply you know, had a, a way, a, a modus operandi that I've sort of described, let people do what they want. Um, for the last 15 years or so, we've actually had a strategy which is gradually becoming more complex, if you like, because we feel that w without some sense of direction, you do get too much friction, or I call it Brownian motion in the system, and you lose too much effort and energy going into just discussing what we should do or what we shouldn't do you know, without actually somebody after consultation through the whole firm, actually laying down, actually, this is the direction we're going in. This is what we're trying to do. And you know, right at the moment, for example, you know, driving our digital transformation is something we need to do in common. We can't do piecemeal you know, because it's not just a collection of PCs anymore. It's a whole network you know, connected to the cloud and we want data stored in a way where we can all make use of it, etc. So we need a bit more collective discipline than we've ever had before. But at the same time, we also need a clearer purpose. So we've just adopted the idea that everything we should do should be in, in the interest of sustainable development and using the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as a, a way to assess whether we're doing that or not. Now, and again, it's a way of you know, getting the firm pulling together. So we used to argue about, is the firm an oil tanker with you know, nobody at the steering wheel or is it a shoal of fish that automatically changes direction at any threat or opportunity? And I think... The best analogy at the moment is the firm is 16,000 people in individual rowing boats, slightly unaware <laughs> that they're interconnected by elastic bands. And in a way, that's where the creativity comes from, isn't it? If you turned yourself into a command and control operation, you'd lose all your geniuses and you'd lose that core process you described. Absolutely. I suspect. No, I was just going to say, what we're finding is as you grow in, in breadth and depth, you know, the number of services you supply, the number of places that you occupy, in some funny ways in our context, um, the time from our founder, who is very clear on our purpose. All those things demand a little bit more um, guidance. Guidance. Guidance yeah, as to what the firm's trying to do and why it's trying to do it. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, 
there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I mean, I remember being younger and more impetuous than I am now. And having my, I guess, my masters have to relitigate with me foundational questions. And if everyone is just doing it all the time, you just really never get anywhere. Some sense of alignment and governance is, is so important. Yeah, but you've got to get just the magic amount before it starts dulling down everybody's enthusiasm. Well, you know, so this business that I am currently building, we're a few hundred properties in a dozen cities around the world, and it's all happened sort of overnight and um, three years, and we're maybe 500 people. So we're not even big by an absolute scale, but in the land of startups, we're starting to be big. And I suspect it's yep. going to be a lot bigger the way it's going. And of course, the mandate that we in the Silicon Valley tribe use is a little different in thinking than the one that you laid out. And so the 500 will turn perhaps to 5,000 on a speedier agenda than if we were thinking a bit differently. But one really central issue that that we are dealing with is on this people topic. Every institution I've been part of over the years in the past has often been very proud of how selective it is, which in a sense is a kind of exclusion bias, right? So to be proud of rejecting 99% of the people who want to come here, 99.9% is a badge of honor. And it's true of the great universities, the great companies, the banks and the Silicon Valley giants and the consulting firms and all that. And presumably, Arab doesn't hire 50% of those who wish to work at Arab. You have a, a very high set of standards. And one of the puzzles that I've been considering is why that's a good thing. Why perhaps we value so highly a business that rejects most people. Is there something in the system, if you build a system that was so good that many different types of people could be successful there, perhaps it would be easier to recruit and attract and retain people and have them do amazing work. I mean, a lot of the systems and processes you're sketching were in support of great people and presumably lots of different kinds of people might be able to stand on such a system and produce good quality work itself. And I wonder how you think about that puzzle. And let me just add one more dimension to it. If you keep sort of rotating that idea in your mind, it makes contact with the notion of diversity and inclusion as well. When you think, um, oh, we only hire the best, it's often those words that are said when you're starting to starting the journey on recognizing why a more diverse team might be, be better than a more monocultural team. Selectivity and its contact with diversity, overall performance, and the role of a wide variety of types of people, and the notion of a business system that supports the best output of people, as opposed to having only the best people and therefore everything else is secondary. I wonder how this package of ideas connects with your concerns at Arab. Connects, absolutely. You know, I would have said we spent some time maybe 30 years ago, falling into that trap of just getting the best people. 
and having quite a narrow focus on what best meant the most academically able from the best institutions, as you just pointed out. And you end up with a very narrow um, view of the world if you follow that. Everybody's very capable, but in the same way. And as you've just alluded to, diversity is incredibly important in a world which is about collaboration, is about bringing different points of view, literally, but also different from different dimensions, different disciplines. Now, you need every aspect of diversity you can bring, every ounce, but and there is a big but here. We still want people with potential and or who can contribute, albeit from their different point of view. So there is still judgment required. You can, I don't think you can get a system into which you can put a random set of people and get as good a result as you can to have a system where you carefully choose a diverse set of people. There's a subtle distinction between those two and it's a continuous journey for us to trade the benefits of diversity against the absolute taking the people who are in the 0.1% of intellectual quotient, for example. But I would say that moving forward as um, as machines, AI, machine learning, etc., do some of the work that I was handpicked to do, for example, which was very numerical. Now, we need other skills. We need better communication skills, persuasion skills. We need better um, EQ, if you like, or even social quotient, you know, better understanding of how people interact, all sorts of things. So that the nature of the diversity of what you're looking for also subtly changes over time, I think. You're an engineer in a firm full of engineers, and on a topic like this, a famously squishy topic, surely you guys have brought some of your engineering mindset to this topic. Surely you have some sense of the psychometric balance of different behaviors you're looking for from people or the mechanical interactions of uh, teams as they work and what their rhythms are. And surely you've attempted to characterize some of this in a way that's more than, than, uh, than what one hears in a conference or a a video lecture about diversity being good for teams? Unfortunately, my only answer to that is that there is all that opportunity in front of us. <laughs> I would say we tend to still work a lot of um, on instinct. And the problem with instinct is it can close things down. Something I was going to mention earlier is one of the problems of harnessing expertise with creativity or design or looking for opportunities is that actually the greater the expertise generally in any individual, the greater the prejudice by which I mean over time you explore lots of opportunities don't work and you always bring that experience with you to any given situation and therefore you don't waste your time looking at the ones which didn't work 10 years ago. And so you narrow down your field of focus, if you see what I mean. And that can be quite limiting in a funny way and you can do that and that can apply to people, the topic we're just talking about, diversity, etc. So it's, you have to keep beating yourself with a stick to say, come on, keep opening up. Keep looking at what's new. Keep learning. Keep refreshing. You know, don't just rely on your experience and your expertise, but keep being fresh to the world or fresh to what's possible. Yeah, as a core guiding principle, I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's once you lay out a formula, of course, then you'd be stuck with that formula, right? And so to say that the work remains to be done to do the people engineering, it will always remain to be done. And so I think that guiding principle certainly makes sense. But you must measure the firm's diversity along certain dimensions. And perhaps you set goals for moving it over time. You're not even at that step. I mean, you've, you've committed well, the firm to the sustainable development goals, or you're quite a progressive firm. And sort of Nordic charter that you've given to the firm at the outset that your founder gave. I mean, it's such a progressive firm, you must have a robust diversity agenda. I think we slightly fear you know, the use of data and the use of metrics. 
and the use of process to deal with um, such a, a soft and squishy tub subject, as you said before, because we fear getting determining something that then turns out to be wrong. So I was sitting in a meeting the other day with um, some principals from other firms, tried to explain about Arup and how we work, and they all sort of nodded and shrugged and whatever. And then eventually I said, um, just to sort of put not too fine a point on it, nobody in Arup has any KPIs, and we are one single profit center. And the two people I was talking to, one of them looked at me and said, after a pause, long pause, but I hear you're quite successful. And the other one looked at me and said, and I hear you actually make money. You know, they just couldn't equate those things into reality, if you sort of mean. And so when you cross-examine anything too much, you risk that attitude as well of not having KPIs and sharing everything, if you sort of mean. So it, Arup is all about nudging it along, about trying new things gently. It's not about trying to control anything, actually. That's amazing. Yeah, it's e a Janus-based uh, organization. I mean, you make some of the most precise and high-reliability projects in the world, and you do it in a way that is like such a fundamentally humanistic approach. Exactly. So one more dimension then. So rather than quizzing you more about the firm's diversity agenda on a sort of macro yeah. scale, one of the places that I've been very interested in the last couple of years is some work from a scientist at uh, MIT named Sandy Peckland. And Sandy Peplin's yep. work, he's written a, public, a somewhat popular book called Social Physics. He studied teams and has been watching how they interact with each other, who speaks the most, do they take turns, how long are the meetings, following people around an office, the sort of butterfly types who are touching lots of different places and the folks who never get up from their desk, and just sort of analyzing the patterns. And I wonder if you have, a, at an intuitive level, a characterization of some of the different characters you see in some of the successful teams or some of the successful patterns that these teams exhibit. For example, you gave me one, they sort of go away and sync by themselves for a while and then come together at some kind of case. Now, that seems like a very nice way of avoiding consensus, norming, sort of group thinking, and driving some creativity. And I, and I wonder if there's some other patterns you would characterize of, of great teams at Arab, when, and the way your sort of nose can tell that a team is going to get to a great answer. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question, that, because it's, it's always a balance of the self and the whole, the whole enterprise and the individuals within it. People won't get maximum enjoyment out of what they do if they don't feel that they have made a personal contribution to an outcome. So, you know, we talk about everybody on a project. You put a bit of yourself into it, but at the same time, no one person is the author of the whole work. The team is the author of the whole work. That doesn't stop each individual wanting to have a personal interaction with the outcome or a, a belief that they contributed something significant to that and it wouldn't be the same without their input and some of that work has to be done then as a personal input to that if you sort of mean that you know, as you said so it's this balance of team and person you know, individual and team I think that we work at most without wanting dominant personalities but decisions still have to be made so we for a long time said you know, no one in Arab would be credited for anything in particular. You know, it's just Arab. But that doesn't work in a world where everybody's really interested in individuals. You know, journalists want to tell stories about superheroes and what they've achieved and so on. And in a way, I'm doing that slightly um, on this podcast by speaking for the firm, but as me, as an individual and my view. And so it's balancing that, as I say, that the whole thing in the individuals is a bit, I think, in teamwork. That's required, but there's a bit more to it than that. You need entrepreneurs who go out and, and see new opportunities, find new clients, new areas of activity. You need the deeply introverted experts who are absolutely concerned with knowing everything about one particular topic. 
You need the creative people who are always kicking the tire to say, is there a better way? You need administrative and organizational people. You, know, you are, in the end, a big enterprise. Somebody has to keep the enterprise running. In the end, it's this idea that you need tons of different people, but they all have to have mutual respect for what each other does and realize that only by having all those different people present do you end up with an enterprise that's successful in which you can play the part you want to play. That's not quite the, quest, the answer to the question you asked, but it's sort of the best I can do, I think. Mm, I like it. I like it. I guess one last territory I want to come back to is this insane client with an unreasonable project. In some ways, yeah. your firm has the luxury of serving others rather than yep. coming up with some crazy scheme that's do or die, and if it doesn't succeed, you're out of business. This is the, the profession of others, actually. You know, some yep. political leader who has to get the bridge built, or they're, they're fired at the next election, or some entrepreneur who wants to launch in a market or create some new product or whatever. So it's all on the line for them. And sometimes they become irrational as a result of these uh, competing aims that they have to serve. And so they come to you. And I guess you've been giving me this really cool temperature posture where you're across the table and you say, well, you know, everything is possible. Just tell me the goal. It may not be what you've just said, but in service of this goal, we can come back to you with some ideas. Is that the basic judo move? of uh, taking this kind of unstoppable force and finding a way to redirect it. Is that how you deal with, because they're on the team too, right? I mean, there's a way that the team works totally. internally at Arab, but now this client who hasn't been trained and brought up and they didn't join 40 years ago, but now they're on the team. Give me a little feeling for how you absorb these uh, foreign elements. You sort of give them the answer is everybody's on the team and you're listening to everybody and trying to get everybody's participation. And at the other end, you know, you've got the client at one end who has a, the problem or wants a solution or wants something. But at the other end, you've got the community. And one thing we have learned, if you like the hard way, is actually you've got to involve the users, the community, you know, the people who are going to benefit or could be disbenefited by what you're doing. They have to be treated as part of the team too. And that's really where the progress is being made at the moment is how you can use virtual reality, how you can use better imaging, how you can get people you know, much closer involved with what a project might be long before it actually materializes as a physical thing. And that's the excitement in a way of, there's much excitement about the digital world, but that to me is one of them, is this idea that everybody can play. You can give people you know, building blocks in a gaming engine, and, and most people now, a lot of people at least, you know, are quite happy in the virtual environment like that, and they can start you know, coming up with ideas themselves, and you become then the conductor of the orchestra, not playing all the instruments in the orchestra. And how does that work? These are sort of where we're heading for, which isn't quite the question that you asked me, but it is all about how does everybody get to have a stake and a say in, in what we're trying to do? Yeah, but I mean, enlarging the point, I think, is such a powerful insight, and I doubt very often the leader asking for a bridge has number one on their mind, how do I make sure the town four miles downstream doesn't start an insurrection against us at the state level or something because of the pollution we put in the water. I mean, enlarging the question in that way to the size of the team and the other stakeholders is, is quite fascinating as part of the, the creative and deliberative process. And they get a vote, I guess. It's not just a public relations agenda. No, no, They're no on the not team. public relations at all. No, no, we, we know that the most successful projects are the ones where you do get proper full, com I'm going to call it community for the sake of simplicity, but where you get proper community involvement and engagement in the project from the outset. The risk sometimes is you get the wrong community because everything we do changes the built environment and changes the landscape in terms of where people are or what they're doing. And the future community isn't always a community that you consulted and engaged with at the beginning. So that's, that's a, oh, yeah. a, little, you know, 
Uh, something like a town springs up on the other side of the bridge and, and they're mad <laughs> that you built the bridge That's but right. it only exists yeah. because of the bridge. Yeah. In London, we created the, the platform for the Olympics by using the spoil out of the tunnels from a previous project, which was deliberate. It wasn't deliberate to attract the Olympics, but it was deliberate to, to regenerate that area of London. But then as you do that regeneration, you've got the whole of the community that needs to use it for the Olympics, and then you've got a community afterwards who are going to move into the, the buildings which are, remain after the Olympics and or constructed next. Yeah, and these are people who aren't present at the beginning. That is fascinating. On this series, I had... Um a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard named Ronald Heifetz. And some of his best work looks very closely at the problems of uh, policymakers and political leaders confronting their constituents on these sort of intractable problems with long consequences into the future, like should we shut down this aluminum plant in Seattle, near Seattle, that's killing people in the long run, but it's the primary source of jobs for everyone, and how do you run an engagement like that? And in those vivid examples of uh, political leadership that he analyzes, it's sort of town halls and meetings and resolute leaders and speeches and working groups and sequence of hearings, and is that the mode of interaction with these communities? You end up there, but you start with a much more um, you know, personal thing. You've got to get out into the communities, and you know, we, we take portable you know, sort of booths, or I can call them, whatever you want to call it, you know, where you can show off what you're proposing. I say using virtual reality, using these new tools and techniques, and literally get direct impact. You can put your plan on the web where everybody can get at them and make comment. You know, it, the way of social engagement now is so wide. There are tons of different ways of doing it before you get to the town hall type approach. Yeah. Right, and that should be the end where everyone's cheering, hopefully, if you've done it right. Hopefully, yeah. Tristan, it's been amazing and so interesting talking with you. I think uh, the world has much to learn from your experience and also from the way your firm conducts itself. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, as I said at the beginning. Thank you very much for inviting us. We love what we do and we love to talk about it. Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love. Write a review please. A five-star review spreads the word and people will follow. Cheers. Thank you. And stay tuned for the next 30 episodes. I'm so excited. We've just passed a big milestone. It didn't take long and all of a sudden we're up at 40 episodes of people telling us how to spread great ideas.